Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When all the world is overcharged with inhabitants, then the last remedy of all is war which provideth for every man by victory or death. Thomas Hobbes Dr. William Harvey was the attaché to the English ambassador to the Holy Roman Empire and attended the Regensburg meeting in the summer of 1636 which was intended to cement Ferdinand III's status as his father's successor. While he stayed in the town of Regensburg, Dr. Harvey explored the surrounding countryside of the town and witnessed firsthand the kind of devastation Englishmen could only have imagined in their worst nightmares. Harvey noted with particular horror the fact that the war continued despite the awful state of the area and the plight of the citizens. This warfare in Germany, he wrote, threatened in the end anarchy and confusion, and he also commented on the necessity they have here of making peace on any condition, where there is no means more of making war, or scarce of subsistence. Charles I of England was made aware by the reports of Harvey just how bad the situation in the Holy Roman Empire had become since Ferdinand II, of course, would never reveal just how severe the Thirty Years' War had been on its populace. But word had also reached other regions too of just how bad the Thirty Years' War had been for the Holy Roman Empire and its populace. The papacy sent a papal delegate tasked with achieving peace between all parties in October 1636 to Cologne, but nobody came. At this stage in the war, neither France nor Spain trusted the Pope to be impartial, and the Protestants rejected papal mediation altogether. In response to this mediation, or attempt at it, Richelieu established the Hamburg Conference in summer 1637, as a result of agreements made between England and France in the previous March. This Hamburg Protocol was eventually rejected by France in favour of continued war, but at this stage the deal went that in exchange for the licence to recruit in England, and the loan of 30 ships for a new campaign, 
France would promise to re-establish the Palatine family and preside over a peace conference intended for Dutch, French, Danish and Swedish reps. From this conference, expected to take place in Hamburg, Charles I of England hoped that articles developed there could be presented for the Emperor and that general peace would be achieved with minimal religious or political loss for either side. In the end, only Denmark and England ratified the treaty in April 1639. By that stage it was old news, and the joint three-way alliance between the two crowns of Sweden and France, coupled with the Dutch Republic, were turning the tide against their Habsburg Imperial and Spanish foe. Charles's attempts to mediate the Thirty Years' War is a significant example of the problems facing the HRE from within and without. Although it could not sustain the war any longer, neither side was content at this stage to compromise. The French, covering their borders in Alsace-Lorraine with Bernard of Weimar and reinforcing their northern border against the Spanish Netherlands, as well as holding on in North Italy and keeping a close watch on the Pyrenees, were experiencing a rise in fortunes that would only increase as the years progressed. Richelieu's initial campaign had almost spelled the end of France, but perseverance and the good fortune of his allies had ensured that the tide turned. Sweden had endured its fall in stock following the death of Gustavus Adolphus and the loss of the Battle of Norlingen in 1634 to retreat and hold Pomerania. Despite some successes in 1636 and 37, Johann Banner's force of experienced, but no doubt beleaguered and exhausted Swedes and mercenaries, were hoping for a breakout from the Pomeranian slice in 1638. The Dutch had perhaps had the most hot and cold fortunes of all the participants in the Thirty Years' War. If we trace their fortunes loosely from their re-entry into the war against Spain in 1621, the Spanish-Dutch war that made up the longer Eighty Years' War conflict, but which formed a staple part of the wider Thirty Years' War struggle, had begun badly for the Dutch, then turned in their favour following Danish and Swedish intervention, then turned against them following Swedish collapses and failed French campaigns, then turned in their favour again once Richelieu's plans finally acquired some traction. In 1638, they too were seeking to achieve the final ruin of the Habsburgs, and they had made a good start the year before when they captured Breda, following that city's presence in the Habsburg hegemony since 1624. Ferdinand III, the new Holy Roman Emperor, and Philip IV, King of Spain and Portugal, both had their own share of problems. But both were closer to one another than ever before. In many ways, this was due to necessity. Spanish successes against France from 1635 to 37 did not knock the latter out of the war, and continued pressure on the Dutch had to be relented in order to give greater attention to the French problem, which freed the Dutch up to achieve some pretty impressive successes, such as the aforementioned Breda. Its finances were in the red and its overseas empire was being plundered by a determined Dutch enemy, but the worst was yet to come for Philip's Iberian Union. Philip's problems were only more troubling for the Habsburgs when one considers the extent to which Ferdinand III relied on Spanish help. Spain was meant to keep Dutch and French efforts at bay along the Spanish Netherlands and Rhine frontier respectively, and the incoming collapse of Spanish fortunes meant that an imperial state already struggling to rid itself of its Swedish presence would soon be faced with ruin. For now, Ferdinand was determined to expel Sweden from Pomerania and defeat Banner's tenacious force once and for all. He had utilised Brandenburg and Saxon forces to achieve this, 
and it also called upon the experience of qualified generals like Gallus and Piccolomini, both of whom had served under the legendary Albrecht of Wallenstein. However, Banner and his successor, Leonard Torstenson, had both served under the legendary Swede Gustavus Adolphus, and both were beloved by their troops and seen as the natural successor to that Swedish king, having fought with him from Livonia to Bohemia in the years before his death. In the previous episode, we detailed how France and Sweden were finally set against the Habsburgs as one, though it took much convincing for both sides to admit that one needed the other. Axel Loxenstierna, Sweden's Chancellor, would not commit to a settlement with France that allowed Sweden little room to manoeuvre, especially while France was finding the war so initially tough. For Cardinal Richelieu, Axe Ox's virtual French equivalent, the balance had to be found between paying for Swedish armies and allowing the Swedes to take the military initiative. Richelieu appeared perfectly content to position France as the paymaster of the Habsburg's enemies in the years before. But when France itself was military threatened in numerous directions, as it was most severely in 1636, the necessity of a Swedish distraction was realised. Just how important Sweden was to France was epitomised by the Swedish victory at Wittstock in October 1636, which took great pressure off France and meant that Gallus had to withdraw his entire army from France's Rhine frontier so as to prevent Banner's army from rampaging through Saxony. Through this victory, Banner effectively knocked the exhausted Brandenburg out of the war and opened the door for negotiations with that electorate in early 1641. Banner couldn't sustain his position though, and after a failed siege of Leipzig, was forced by Gallus' army back into the Pomeranian bridgehead from which he had come. Still though, because of Banner's victory, Richelieu had acquired some much-needed breathing space, and began to focus France's attention on the now surrounded South Netherlands, caught as they were between French and Dutch forces. Richelieu had been busy at the diplomatic game too, he had finally accepted the necessity of Swedish help as the cornerstone of French foreign policy, and made the commitment of France official with the Treaty of Hamburg in March 1638. This treaty solidified the determination of the two crowns to fight together to the end, without a separate peace, to defeat the Austrian Habsburgs, while the fortunes of the Spanish still depended mostly on Franco-Dutch moves alone. The most important aspect of the Treaty of Hamburg was the financial commitment of Richelieu's government to Sweden. David Milland, in his book Europe at War 1600-1650, notes that, quote, Richelieu, for his part, no longer had any reservations about declaring war on the Emperor. By the Treaty of Hamburg in March 1638, he guaranteed an annual subsidy of 1 million livres, 400,000 Reichsthalers. In return, Oxenstierna abandoned Sweden's claims to territory in the Rhineland. Both sides agreed not to negotiate separately with their enemies, and they incorporated into their treaty their first thoughts about a possible settlement to the war. They laid down that there should be a general amnesty within the Holy Roman Empire, and the restoration of the political, constitutional, and religious conditions pertaining 1618. End quote. I placed much emphasis last time on the importance of the Franco-Swedish epiphany realised by Richelieu and Axe Ox that France needed Sweden and vice versa, and that by acting cooperatively in an officially organised policy, they could cause the ruin rather than mere headaches for the Habsburgs. 
This point of the previous episode is pretty much personified in this episode, since almost as soon as Gallus had left to try and contain Banner's Swedes, Bernard of Weimar's French forces along the Rhine began to seize critical Spanish possessions there. Possessions like Rheinfelden in February 1638 and Brysac that December. The latter of these strongholds, Brysac, was of the foremost importance for the maintenance of the Spanish road, and when Bernard captured it, Spain was unable to resupply its South Netherlands possessions and access the road in between Spain and North Italy. Brysac, meaning breakwater because of its position along the Rhine River, was seen at the time as one of the strongest fortification towns in Europe, and its capture by Bernard bookended what had been the most successful year of Bernard's career as a soldier of fortune so far. Establishing himself at Breisach, which is situated nowadays in the very southwest of Germany, Bernard was attempting to ensure that the promises made to him by Richelieu would be fulfilled. Some histories claim that Bernard was a concern to Richelieu, since the latter feared he would set up his own duchy in the region with Breisach as its capital. Others believe that Richelieu had promised him not just Breisach, but also the entirety of Alsace if he was successful in his ventures. Apparently, Richelieu really wanted to inspire Bernard. Regardless, Bernard would not live long enough to either pose a problem or fulfil the promise Richelieu made to him. He died in April 1639 of smallpox, and Brysac was placed under France's sole jurisdiction the month after. Because Spain loses the plot in so many areas in the late 1630s to early 1640s, it's important we cover everything adequately. Following the fall of Brysac in December 1638, which it seems clear from my sources was the beginning of the end of Habsburg fortunes, Richelieu sultaned up another problem, Savoy, in the bud before it could re-enter the Habsburg camp and in the process reopen part of the Spanish road. Part of the sting of Richelieu's successes had been his severing of this critical Spanish artery, a route which was the only feasible way to supply Spanish dependencies in the South Netherlands and Italy over land, as well as support their Austrian Habsburg allies wherever possible. Within Savoy, the ruling Duke Victor Amadeus had died in 1637, leaving behind Christine, who happened to be the sister of the King of France, Louis XIII, to rule in his place. However, Victor had had numerous brothers who favoured Habsburg offers. In fact, one of them was serving in the army of Flanders against the Dutch, and they demanded that, because it was an imperial fief or vassal, the emperor was entitled to appoint a regency in Savoy, which they, as loyal subjects to the Habsburgs, insisted to sit on. Before this could happen, Richelieu sent in troops to reinforce Christine's position in 1639, and soon Savoy was firmly back in the French orbit. The French reinforcement of Savoy had been no accident. Richelieu knew well the Spanish dependency on its road, and ensured that no chance existed to make the difficulties of Spain any less so by facilitating an easy grab of Savoy. Previously an unwise or drastic move, Richelieu could not guarantee that in his desperation, Olivares would not feel the need to move in on Savoy and occupy it, so it was essential that he acted fast. However, not even Richelieu could have predicted what befell his rival next. Jumping the gun tremendously, and dreaming up the kind of high-risk, high-rewards plan that would make even pre-1635 Richelieu blush, Olivares acted as though he was in control of the Spain from 1627, 
when Habsburg intentions threatened the Baltic Sea, while Wallenstein ripped up the Danish Jutland Peninsula. His plan was to send an armada to Flanders, defeat the Dutch fleet lurking there, resupply and reinforce the beleaguered Spanish forces in the loyal provinces, and recruit the Danish fleet for an attack on the Swedish port of Augsburg, which was the latter's main gateway to the North Sea. It was reminiscent even of Philip II's armada, simply because it contained so many possibilities for something to go very wrong. But Olivares was insistent that it go ahead, imagining the results that a successful realisation of the plan would produce. Perhaps for Olivares, the lines between possibility and reality had been blurred by his own chronic desperation for success. A success that would hopefully save his primacy as First Minister and his own country in the Thirty Years' War. As David Milland explains though, such Spanish desperation merely granted the Dutch a chance to shine. Quote, Though the odds were heavily against the venture succeeding, it was nonetheless fortunate for the Dutch that in this crisis they had a seaman of exceptional ability in charge of their fleet. Frederick Henry, as Admiral General, exercised very little coordination between the individual states' colleges of admiralty and followed the general custom of appointing as his representatives men of noble rank but little naval experience. In 1636, however, he had selected Martin Tromp, who was first and foremost a sailor, and one to rejoice in the opportunity to seek a naval battle with Spain. When Ocuenda, the Spanish admiral, arrived in the Channel in September 1639, Tromp, though heavily outnumbered at that moment, immediately launched the attack. End quote. Trump's attack was ferocious, and despite having roughly 45 ships against Ocuenda's 70+, the experience and speed of the Dutch attack first unbalanced the inexperienced Spanish, and then scattered them. Spanish ships, not wanting to become stranded on Flemish sandbanks, fled for the English territorial waters, and hoped for the kind of hospitality and respite Charles of England had granted them before. Charles was, in fact, perfectly willing to host the ships in his waters, so long as the Spanish paid for their lodging there. A rep was sent to the Spanish Netherlands and hastily raised the funds necessary to pay Charles for a period of rest that would hopefully be long enough to combat the Dutch in round two. But Tromp was not willing to grant English waters the respect his Spanish adversaries expected he would. Three weeks after the first engagement, he was ordered forward by the Estates General of the Republic to destroy Ockenda's force wherever they resided. Trump, by this stage fortified with some hastily converted merchantmen, used his now equal strength to wreak havoc on the Spanish position. Using tactics as basic as fire ships to scare the inexperienced sailors out, Trump witnessed the decimation of the Spanish fleet as it splintered yet again in all directions. Subsequent mopping-up engagements followed, and Ockenda managed to retreat in one piece to Spanish Dunkirk. But the grand plans of Olivares had gone up in smoke. The Dutch could now not possibly be reconquered by Spain. The failure here at the so-called Battle of the Downs on the 21st of October 1639 must have been especially hard for Olivares to take. Having gambled much on the venture, it is likely that he saw the writing on the wall where the Netherlands was concerned, following this decisive loss. However, 
Unfortunately for Olivares, the loss to the Dutch was merely the opening act in the play that was about to portray almost completely Spain's dramatic fall. We've been talking about Spain as though it was a singular body in the previous episodes. This was really for convenience sake, but the time has come to address the makeup of Spain before it disintegrates before our very eyes in the next half hour or so. Aragon, Castile and Portugal made up the essential royal backbone of Spain in 1639, and though these parts had been forged together in far earlier years, the cultural and regional independence of the provinces were central facets of the feudal system which enabled all the parts to gel. When the centre, Castile, began overtaxing or making unjust demands towards the northeast of Spain, Aragon, or the far west in Portugal, the results were iffy at best. David Milland provides the best analysis of Spain's status in 1639. Quote, the Spanish monarchy, monolithic though it appeared to its enemies, was in reality a federal union of five kingdoms, Castile, Aragon, Navarre, Granada and Portugal, which shared a common loyalty to one royal family but preserved their separate constitutions, customs and liberties. None was more independent than Catalonia, itself one of the three separate kingdoms of Aragon. It regarded Castile as an allied but foreign power with whom it had neither economic links nor historic associations. As a Mediterranean state, it had taken no part in Castilian enterprises in America, nor for that matter in the Netherlands. It resented being dragged into Castilian wars and refused to become more closely associated with a kingdom burdened beyond belief with overseas commitments and domestic debt. End quote. Castilians viewed Catalans as self-regarding and xenophobic, unwilling to pull their weight but happy to reap the benefits of the Spanish Empire. Olivares himself worded it that the Catalans were entirely separate from the rest of the monarchy and were useless for service and in a state little befitting the dignity and power of his majesty. The problem was, though, that the so-called power of his majesty had notably declined since the strength and force of will, encapsulated by Philip II, had held the Iberian Union together. Such a strength was absent from Philip IV, and even if it had been present, as early as halfway through the rule of Philip III, chronic problems that went continuously unaddressed by the Spanish Cortes contributed greatly to Spain's inherent illness. The conflict with the Dutch had been part of the cause of this malady, but the failure to reform Spanish administration even during the however brief periods of peace also made up a big part of the problem. Philip IV had sought to employ the descendants of those who had served his father in office, not because he wished to stagnate or keep Spanish admin back in the 16th century, but because he believed that their strength would pull his country back. By doing so, though, he critically miscalculated. These statesmen had very few new ideas, and often looked towards their ancestors for inspiration on Spanish policy, policy which, though it worked during Philip II's time, was unsuited for the kind of Spain that existed in the late 1630s. Spain had been made administratively sick by corruption and the failure to reform, and yet Olivares still isolated the king from the worst of its problems. 
For Philip IV, far more concerning than the theory that Valencia's governor was embezzling local incomes, for example, was the very real fact that France threatened Spain's military integrity and eternal security. Richelieu's 1639 attack on Roussillon, a former French province just above Catalonia in northeastern Spain, had been no romantic drive towards long-lost territory and a nostalgic attempt to unify it under its once French king. Instead, it was designed as a challenge to Olivares, because to defend it, he would have to move through Catalonia, and Catalans did not like Spanish, what were essentially men from Castile, moving through and occupying their major forts and towns for the sake of fighting an enemy they had never wanted to fight in the first place. It was, in some ways, strikingly similar to the situation in the HRE, because though Philip claimed to rule Spain as its absolute monarch, at times like these, his rule appeared to depend on the veins of goodwill that were last seen in the emperor's attempts to appease electoral and princely concerns, so that he could use their territory and resources to defeat his enemies. Richelieu would claim that he had used the previously abandoned siege at the port of Fuentarabia, located literally at the bottom of France's western coastline and just within Spanish Basque territory, to test if the Catalans would come to its aid, and if he should thus press forward with an attack with them in mind. When the Catalans did not, and in fact refused to send help, much to the despair of Olivares who commented that, they, the Catalans, ignore His Majesty's pleas for aid in relieving the port, as though they, in some peculiar way, are not at war. Richelieu developed the next phase of his plan to rouse Catalonian fever against Spain, in his aforementioned invasion of Roussillon. In winter 1639, Olivares bit the bullet and made the decision to billet troops in Catalonia. He hoped that such a decision would bring home the fact to the Catalans that their region, particularly Roussillon, was at war with France, and that because of this, Catalans had some responsibility to contribute to its own defence. Initially, it worked well enough. Castilian troops did in fact drive the French back, and it appeared as though Richelieu's plan to ruin Iberia had failed. But then, the pay never came for the Castilian soldiers, and they took what they upheld as their payment from Catalan citizens. Frustrations and claims that Catalonia had not pulled its weight in the face of the French threat contributed to the chaos and animosity, so that by May 1640 their presence was provoking risings throughout Catalonia, and by midsummer the entirety of Catalonia was in revolt. By the autumn of 1640 they had asked Louis XIII of France to protect them from the central government in Madrid, and proclaimed Louis Duke of Barcelona. Richelieu must have been slightly grinning to himself, because his carefully laid plans appeared finally to be bearing some fruit. As desperate as the Spanish plight was now though, facing down rebellion on their own peninsula, the existence of another disastrous revolution in the Iberian Union's newest member perhaps sought to top it, that of the revolt developing in Portugal. Philip II had fused Portugal to Spain in 1580, he was at the height of his imperial power and influence. 
having yet to face the disgrace of the Armada failure, and rich with successful overseas efforts. Philip's Spanish Empire had no equal on the continent or perhaps the world. The revolt of the Dutch, seen as a minor issue, would soon acquire international significance, but in 1580, the danger posed by this comparatively tiny grouping of provinces towards the Spanish Majesty was not considered significant enough for Philip to lose sleep over. And yet he wanted more. A dynastic crisis in Portugal, that other Iberian kingdom and a highly successful and lucrative imperial power in its own right, was enduring a crisis in succession, with many candidates staking their claim to the prestigious throne. Philip tried to stake his own claim due to having Manuel I of Portugal, that great and noteworthy Portuguese monarch who ruled from 1495 to 1521, as a grandfather. He was not alone in this claim, but he ensured that his claim won the day, and the following year in 1581 he had established his cousin Albert of Austria, the same Albert who would later form one half of the Archduke's government in the Spanish Netherlands, as Viceroy of Portugal in Lisbon. Thus began the status of Portugal as essentially a client of Spain, though with great concessions and sovereignty and tax rates, Portugal would share Spain's foreign policy for the next 60 years, which meant that it would share its relationships abroad as well as its fortunes, be they good, or, as they began to appear in 1640, bad. The possession of Portugal did place Philip II at the helm of the world's largest overseas empire, and gave him authority over the largest bank of rich resources anyone had ever seen. The impact of all these goodies was blunted somewhat by the continuous stream of wars Philip embarked upon, and the numerous bankruptcies he endured, but the achievement and significance of the events stands nonetheless. Since 1580, the Portuguese nobility had looked unfavourably upon their Spanish king only when local Portuguese affairs were spurned. Problems within the Union only really started to emerge, for example, when the Dutch began to cause problems way out of proportion to their size. The Portuguese, having created one of the largest overseas trading empires in their own right, while being one of Europe's smallest states to do so, would have known something about the whole, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog, cliché. But by the 1620s, Portuguese losses meant that its nobility began to agitate. Dutch achievements overseas at the expense of Portuguese possessions rattled the Iberian relationship to no end, especially when Madrid was viewed as apathetic in its response to the Dutch threat. Olivares remained determined to defeat Dutch efforts overseas, even resisting tempting Dutch offers of peace in return for the Dutch rule over Portuguese Brazil. The Dutch seizure of Brazil and its important ports as well as the severe toll Dutch privateers had taken on the Portuguese trade incomes, began to sow seeds of discontent within the Portuguese nobility. Ronald Ash, in his book The Thirty Years' War, The Holy Roman Empire in Europe, 1618-1648, notes on the genesis of the revolt. Quote, in the late 1630s, the Dutch had finally managed to establish themselves permanently in northern Brazil thereby threatening Portugal's income from the flourishing sugar export trade. Spain, or Castile, was clearly unable to defend Portugal's colonial empire as long as her priorities lay elsewhere, with the war in the Low Countries and the contest against France. 
they was resented all the more strongly because the Portuguese were made to pay higher taxes from the 1620s onwards to contribute towards the cost of imperial defence. In the 1630s, popular discontent led to a series of anti-fiscal riots. Although they were quickly put down by Spanish troops, they prepared the ground for the coup d'etat of 1640, in which many noblemen, as well as a number of rich Lisbon merchants, dissatisfied with Spanish rule took part, and which were secretly supported by France. End quote. What contributed also towards the Portuguese desire to leave the Spanish camp was the simple fact that it was obvious from its failures that Spain was not the lion it once was. Now it was more of a wild house cat, still capable of occasional bursts of energy and success, but undoubtedly finished as the fearsome all-powerful feline it once was. Especially of note was the war with the Dutch, which the Portuguese accused Madrid of failing to effectively persecute overseas, or at least in Portuguese seas. The Dutch had run rampant in Brazil, and would not be evicted from the region until the mid-1650s, but it was the Spanish failure to defeat the Dutch in Europe that really shattered the idea that a partnership with Spain was good for Portuguese security. In the years before, Portuguese nobles had come to believe that Spain could not protect its foreign interests. Now they had irrefutable proof that Spain could not even protect its own local interests. Rumours abounded that Olivares, following the Dutch failures, was planning on abolishing the Portuguese Cortes and incorporating the kingdom into Castile, thereby ending the independence and separate nature of the two crowns for good. Whether or not Olivares planned this is certainly debatable, since though he was a desperate man in 1640 he was not stupid, and he would have known full well that the elimination of Portugal's Cortes, essentially its state council, would have caused far more problems than it solved. The grievances of Portugal were certainly legitimate though. Madrid had neglected its Portuguese commitments so as to effectively conduct its campaigns against the French and Dutch on land, but because both of these, particularly the latter, were so obviously failing in 1640, and because Catalonia also harboured similar grievances, it seemed like the right time. The Portuguese nobles had seen previously their financial interests threatened and their national privileges and influences reduced from Philip III's efforts to integrate Portugal into Spain as a whole, as if he and future Spanish kings, such as Philip IV, planned on treating Portugal just the same as Aragon or Navarre or Granada, irrespective of its history as an independent, sovereign imperial power. However, it was the Portuguese people who contributed the most valuable commodity of all, public approval. With this rapturous approval of the populace granting legitimacy to the cause of independence, the people poured their patriotic fervour onto one John, Duke of Braganza, who was proclaimed as John IV of Portugal. John actually claimed legitimacy as the grandson of Catherine, Duchess of Braganza, who had been one of the claimants to the Portuguese throne all the way back in 1580. John's grandmother Catherine, like Philip II of Spain, had claimed descent from Manuel I, and since his family's failed bid for the Portuguese throne, the fortunes of the Braganza family had in fact dramatically improved, to the point that they are one of the wealthiest noble families in Brazil. Coincidentally, they were also adversely affected by the Spanish rule of their kingdom, and in December 1640 John's wife, whose brother happened to be the Duke of Medina Sidonia, and from wealth and influence herself, 
as well as sharing hatred for all things Olivares, persuaded John to use his family's resources and that of his brother-in-law's to seize the Portuguese throne. Though John needed a smidging of convincing, the people flocked to his banner, and Olivares could do nothing to stop the tide of patriotism that was made all the more intense by the fact that the people hadn't had an outlet for such patriotism for nearly three generations. The war against- Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Against Portugal, sometimes called the Portuguese Restoration War, would drag on until 1668 with the Treaty of Lisbon, that recognised Portuguese sovereignty. By that time, the world order had definitively changed, but even in early 1641, the portents were still grave for Spanish fortunes. What made the revolts of Catalonia and Portugal worse for Olivares was the French and Swedish hands in both. Neither Richelieu nor Axox wasted any time in recognising the sovereignty of either state and as Olivares scrambled to send seven divisions against Portugal in an attempt to end the revolution early, his very career was being discussed in Madrid. The career of Olivares, as we have covered it, began when he became Spain's Prime Minister in 1621, and it is examined in conclusion by J. H. Eliot in his book Spain and Its World, 1500-1700. Quote, Olivares's great bid between 1621 and 1640 to turn back the pages of history to the heroic days of Philip II had visibly failed, and like everything else about Olivares, his failure was on a grand scale. The man whom eulogists had portrayed in the days of his greatness as Atlas, supporting on his shoulders the colossal structure of the monarchy, was now Samson-like, bringing it all crashing down with him in his fall. End quote. Olivares's failures were most immediate in 1640, as Catalonia, Portugal and the ultimate failure of the Dutch campaigns effectively ended his career, though he would remain in office until 1643. 
However, it was in the 1630s that his decline had really begun. He had by that stage surrounded himself with yes-men and was prone to bouts of mental illness that hampered his ability to administrate as much as he'd have liked. While it would be bordering on ridiculous to blame him for Spain's decline, since the inherent problems within Spain, particularly Castile, had been in need of address since the beginning of the century, Olivares will nonetheless always be mentioned in history as the statesman who had the misfortune of serving as Spain's Prime Minister while Spain transitioned from first to second-rate power. Olivares certainly could have done more to fix Spain's integral problems of tax, infrastructure and corruption that had drained the country so completely by 1640. He could also have done more to find a solution to the Dutch War, though whether or not such a peace would have been authorised by Philip IV is another matter. However, we can't blame Olivares for the rise of France, or for the fortune of that country that they had Richelieu at the helm when they needed such a character the most. We should also bear in mind the simple fact that no country, no matter how strong, can endure unharmed the kind of war for the length of time that Spain had. Castile, the centre of Spain's power base, resembled in 1640 a shell of its former self. Where Philip II had once recruited able-bodied soldiers into his fresh Turkio formations, where men had worked the agriculture and precious metals had been sourced from the New World by Castilian immigrants, Castile was now empty, arid, drained and exhausted. Levies, the forced conscription of men into the army, were also getting harder to procure. As the English ambassador wrote as early as 1635, I have observed these levies, and I find the horses so weak, as the most of them will never be able to go to the rendezvous, and those very hardly gotten. The infantry so unwillingly serve as they are carried like galley slaves in chains, which serves not the turn, and so far short number if what is purposed, as they come not to one of three. Castile had been further drained by migration to the New World in the years before the war, though the population of Castile still managed to explode between the 1530s and 1590s. The effects of severe famine in 1599 and 1600 wreaked havoc on the Castilian landscape, and it never really recovered. And the expelling of the Moriscos, those of Islamic or non-Christian origin, who had come and settled and remained after the Islamic conquests of the 6th, 7th and 8th centuries, also exacerbated the problems that were pointing towards a shortage of manpower. In Castile alone, some 90,000 Moriscos were evicted. In total, some 275,000 were evicted from Spain proper between 1609 and 1614. The sudden absence of these people, who had carried out the mostly menial tasks of the region, resulted in a critical dislocation of the Castilian economy and began the difficult balancing act between fair wages and good prices that troubled Spain so deeply over the 17th century. Castile was supposed to be the manpower resource and monetary bank of Spain, and by extension the Habsburgs, yet it could barely feed itself in 1600, and by 1640 it depended on grain brought across its empire. So focused on exporting sheep, so focused on making jewellery, so focused on creating a complicated series of government bonds, were the Castilian administrators that adequate crops were not planted to feed the populace, and imported metals from the New World were not invested into the economy. In other words, the Spain of 1640 was still acting as though it was 1540, despite the fact that Spain by this stage 
faced external and internal crises that made reforming critical. Elliot notes, quote, The injection of new life into the Castilian economy in the mid-17th century would have required a vigorous display of personal enterprise, a willingness and ability to invest in agrarian and industrial projects, and to make use of the most recent technical advances. None of these, neither enterprise, investment, or technical knowledge, proved to be forthcoming. End quote. Spain was accustomed to the quest for glory and booty, not reform or entrepreneurial enterprise. Crusading and conquering lands in the New World had injected cash into Spain, cash that should have been used to build Spain into a superpower that would have stood the test of time and only become greater. Instead, by 1640, Spain was long past the point where its inherent problems could be ignored. The gap that had been filled by American silver was closing, and Philip IV either didn't understand or wasn't informed how bad the state of domestic affairs were. What he did know, though, was that Spain now faced an enemy on its borders with a population of 16 million against Spain's 7.5, and that its far-off enemy in the Netherlands could not be defeated, yet the war there would not end. While in Iberia, its one-time vassal Portugal was breaking away, and the immediate attempts to defeat her was failing. Just like the Catalonian revolt to the east of the country drained Spanish endurance, and would do for the whole decade. The decline of Spain, previously imagined by me to have begun with the failure of the Armada in 1588, was in fact culminating here. Just as Levares became surrounded by enemies in court, so too did the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand. Remember that other Ferdinand who had led the Spanish in the Habsburg victory at Nordlingen in 1634. The Infant had become incredibly strained with the latest series of chronic setbacks, as well as the apparent complete misunderstanding of the Dutch situation by Madrid, as the Infant was sent countless requests for him to send badly needed troops back to Spain to fight against the Catalans and the Portuguese. When the Dutch capture Breda out of nowhere, the Infant scrambled to respond, with the squeezing of his small domains between Franco-Dutch plans, now moving more effectively, only got worse. In 1638 he was able to defend the critical city of Antwerp from a year-long campaign, but he went on to lose ground in other areas as the towns of La Capelle, Landrachy, and Damvillière, nowadays all bordering northeast France, were lost to the French. Most damagingly of all, though, in the province of Artois, just bordering northeast France, the town of Arras was taken after a lengthy siege in mid-1640. Arras, also known as Atrecht by the Dutch, had been the city where the pro-Spanish Dutch states had signed the Union of Atrecht in 1580 which was followed by the pro-independence Dutch states signing the Treaty of Utrecht the year after. Essentially, it had been the place where the original battle lines of the Spanish-Dutch War had begun, and to lose such a symbolically significant city now was as clear an illustration as any that the Spanish were definitively losing the fight. David Milland encapsulates the despair of the Infant well when he writes, quote, Wearied, indeed prematurely aged, by the barrage of endless and impossible demands to send aid to Castile, while struggling to hold both the French and Dutch at bay, he reported in 1641 that, If the war with France is to continue, we have not the means to take the offensive. 
The Spanish and Imperial armies are reduced to such a state that they can undertake nothing. The only solution is to establish supporters in France and use them to make the Paris government more amenable. End quote. The Infant had once been seen as the best hope for the Netherlands, and, along with Ferdinand III as Holy Roman Emperor, both were viewed as the critical injection of youth and energy that the Habsburg family needed. But events had overtaken them both. At the age of 32, the Infant Ferdinand's health had significantly deteriorated due to the immense stress and worry he endured at his posting. He died, most think of repeated stomach ulcers, on the 9th of November 1641 in Brussels. His death sparked something of an incident for the Habsburg family, because both the Austrian and Spanish branches desired different candidates to replace him in Brussels. Ferdinand III, having viewed the Infant as his blood brother following their bonding experience in the Habsburg victory at Norlingen in 1634, wanted to see his younger brother, Leopold, take the reins of the Spanish Netherlands. And indeed, Leopold would do so in time. But for the moment, Philip IV of Spain wanted his own illegitimate son, John, to take the infant's place. This disagreement, which threatened to drive a wedge between the two branches, was put on hold as John was only 12 years old. And so Philip reasoned that the incumbent governor of the region, Francisco de Milo, should keep the seat warm for John until John came of age. The realist would have argued that it didn't matter anyway, since at the rate Spain was losing ground in the Spanish Netherlands, there wouldn't be any need for a governor from the Habsburg family within a few years. As far as incumbent governors go though, Francisco de Milo will prove a particularly bad choice, and we'll find out why in the years to come. While Richelieu was ensuring the destabilising of Spain, he was also making sure that payments to his Swedish ally reached Johann Banner on time. Indeed, the provisions of French monies was a boon for Swedish fortunes, as Banner soon began to turn what had initially appeared as a forlorn hope for Sweden in 1636 into his own triumphant campaign comparable to that of Gustavus Adolphus in the previous years. Johann Banner, in early 1639, having endured successes then reversals, was in need of a definitive victory to instil Swedish confidence at home in the possibility of eventual victory, rather than a haphazard campaign. The importance in attacking a divided enemy then was obvious, and Banner was able to rely on the useful diversionary tactics of Bernard of Weimar for this cause. Bernard overran Alsace and attacked Franche Comte enabling Banner to advance as Gallus pulled back from Saxony and went back to the Rhine where he had originally been campaigning to stop Bernard. Banner's victory at the Battle of Chemnitz on the 14th of April 1639 shattered German morale in the centre of the HRE, and enabled Banner to push into Bohemia yet again, where he would burn through the barren Bohemian countryside and attempt yet another siege of Prague in mid-1640. The plan to contain the Swedes and French had obviously failed for Ferdinand III, and he would receive ever more troubling news the following year, as all of Spain's woes that we've just covered will come to pass. By the time 1640 had ended, it was clear to Ferdinand that Spain, so drowning in its own problems, couldn't spare much help for its Habsburg cousins in the HRE. Ferdinand was effectively on his own.
Maximilian of Bavaria. This narrative's resident opportunist since 1573 began to see the fall in Habsburg fortunes as something which, this time, they could not bounce back from. As the key ally of Ferdinand, and one of his most important financial supporters too, as he had been to his father, Ferdinand II, Max had gained tremendously in the Thirty Years' War, and he now wanted to create a similarly profitable peace. Once again, he looked to France. Seeking out Richelieu in early 1640, after news had reached him about the difficult state of affairs in the HRE, and the pressure Sweden was yet again exerting, Max hoped that a good deal could be reached with France that would keep Bavaria out of the end game of the war. He seemed to have given little thought to the idea that peace with France would mean abandoning the Emperor, but then such considerations of loyalty, as we have seen, mattered less to Max than saving his own skin and that of his lands. As Geoffrey Parker, in his book The Thirty Years' War, explains though, Richelieu was having none of it. Quote, in January 1640, even before the electoral meeting at Nuremberg, secret talks with French representatives had been held at Einsiedeln, at which Maximilian offered to make a separate peace with France on three conditions. One, recognition of the electoral title for himself and his descendants. Podcast footnote. This first term Max desired refers to the electorate of the Palatinate, which Max had occupied almost a generation before in the early 1620s. Though the campaign must have seemed like a distant memory, Max still harboured the same grand ambitions for the region. He wanted France, in this case, to recognise the Bavarian right to hold the Palatine electorate title, in other words, replacing the ceremonial privileges and taking the vote out of the hands of any future Palatine elector, such as the descendants of Frederick V, who remained in exile in The Hague. This was certainly a cheeky inclusion on the part of Max since the Palatine issue had been heavily debated since Ferdinand II gave Max the temporary electoral rights to the region. End podcast footnote. Two, French withdrawal from Alsace, and three, a repudiation of France's alliance with Sweden. These haughty terms were angrily brushed aside by Richelieu, who had already decided to renew the Swedish treaty. End quote. Ferdinand III was not oblivious to the problems facing his lands or those of his allies. The problem was also the overlapping nature of the theatres of war. Essentially, it was also three against two, and as the resources of France and its relationship, finally producing fruit with Sweden, were beginning to heavily strain the exhausted Habsburgs, while the Dutch continuously poked and prodded Iberian shipping abroad, upsetting Portuguese merchants when the Spanish response was apathetic, and destabilising Spanish security yet further. If I haven't said it before, the Dutch have got to be the most painful rebellion I've ever encountered. It wasn't just the fact that they occupied Spanish attention in the South Netherlands, and so prevented the Spanish from fighting only the French in that region, it was also the fact that they maintained one of the most organised and cohesive overseas trading and combat fleet systems I've ever seen. The foundations of the Dutch system that had been created by years of attempting to make as much money as possible while under Spanish rule, and the success of this, meant that the region was the diamond of Spain's crown. We often take for granted the fact that the Dutch went from being a county of the Spanish Empire to one of the largest trading empires, a formidable land power in its own right, and the strongest, most innovative maritime power of the era. Certainly, when one thinks of rebellions, 
one does not imagine that the rebellion would include such a coordinated revolution, or that the so-called revoltees would have a war strategy in place to not just keep their former masters at bay, but so often frustrate, equal, and dramatically better them on sea and land. I think it's only fair that we take a sec to realise this and give credit to the Dutch for their hard work. Their war against Spain was a staple part of Europe for 80 years. Yet even in these closing phases, the kind of collapse facing Spain was nowhere to be found in the Dutch Republic, and I would count that as one of their grandest achievements at all. What better way to stick it to your former masters than to be around and warring against it while it crumbled in front of you? A European fact by 1640 was that the Dutch had gone from being the provincial rebel to a worldwide powerhouse and the world leader in naval trade across the world. William the Silent would surely be proud. As I was saying before I got all carried away in that Dutch tangent, the Habsburgs depended on each other. Geoffrey Parker outlines how much, and brings us back up to speed on what we've covered so far. Quote, Ever since Nordlingen, Philip IV had given his brother-in-law extensive aid. He maintained garrisons in the Palatinate, he provided a subsidy worth 500,000 thalers a year, and by supporting armies in Lombardy, the Low Countries and Catalonia, he tied down the major part of French military strength. His brother, the Infant, had even managed to threaten Paris in 1636. The French, however, were not Spain's only enemies. The Cardinal Infant was still forced to commit most of his troops against the army of the Dutch Republic. And Philip himself deployed important resources on the defence of the overseas possessions of his Spanish and Portuguese crowns. In October 1639, a great fleet of warships carrying troops and supplies from Spain to the Netherlands was intercepted by the Dutch in the Channel and almost totally destroyed. Another, sent to relieve Brazil, met the same fate at Recife three months later. End quote. The concerns of Spain abroad as the Dutch war worsened, combined with its disintegrating domestic situation in 1640, persuaded Ferdinand III to call for an electoral meeting at Nuremberg in February of that year. Amidst the chaotic atmosphere at the meeting, which achieved next to nothing, Ferdinand began to believe that the best way to prove he was serious about tabling a working conference and thereby discovering what the options really were, was to resurrect the electoral diet. Not since 1613 had this been done, and word went out to the princes and electors across the HRE that Ferdinand was planning on tabling a diet due for September 1640 at Regensburg, Bavaria, so that he could discuss the disputes that kept the country at war. It was the best way to get the attention of the HRE, but even despite this nod to the old ways, which some princes had to locate a book to try and familiarise themselves with, owing to Ferdinand II's complete shunting of the institution, the response of the feelers were anemic. Geoffrey Parker covers its events. Quote, The electors held some 185 formal meetings, the princes 153. There were also 26 joint meetings. Naturally, the territorial rulers themselves did not attend for the entire year. Some dared not come at all, so there were innumerable delays for correspondence between the princely courts and their delegations in Regensburg. Letters from Munich took two or three days, letters from Mainz and Vienna took between five and eight days, and letters from Königsberg, where the Elector of Brandenburg now resided, took three weeks in the summer and five in the winter. Some did not even send delegations. 
Ferdinand excluded the Protestant administrations of dioceses affected by the Edict of Restitution and those princes in arms against the Emperor. End quote. The interesting aspect of the Regensburg meeting was that it was continuing through some of the worst Habsburg disasters, most notably in Spain, but also by way of Banner's increasing fortunes. After making an organised retreat from Bohemia, Banner spent the beginning of 1640 skirmishing in the west and consolidating his position across the north of Germany. This meant attempting to convince additional princes to jump ship to the Triple Alliance camp, once again, but mostly just to Sweden in this case. Of all the German princes, that of Hesse deserves particular attention. Hesse has a complicated history which I will not seek to burden you with. Philip of Hesse made the convenient decision to split his lands into four between his four sons in 1567 so that his sons could each get a piece, and this created four different branches of the dynasty, the most notable being Hesse Castle and Hesse Darmstadt. In our timeline, Hesse Castle was ruled by a regency government while William VI came of age. His father had lost much territory to Hesse Darmstadt since the latter was on the imperial side and against his Hessian brethren, despite the fact that the rulers of both had originated from Philip's sons. It was also significant that the two Hessian lines differed religiously. That of Hesse Castle was Calvinist and sided with the Triple Alliance, while Hesse Darmstadt was Lutheran and followed Saxony everywhere. Though it would eventually become famous for its part played as mercenaries in the American Revolution, Hesse Castle was heavily relied upon by France and Sweden, who both ensured, with their own success, that William VI would regain territory lost, and then some, in the years leading up to the final peace in Westphalia. Though Banner certainly acknowledged Hessian contributions, and they undoubtedly made up a large portion of his army, he needed another big win to collapse what had been made in the Peace of Prague once and for all. When searching for his coup de grace, Banner looked no further than the ongoing negotiations at Regensburg. What better way to send a clear message to the Imperials than to crash their peace party? Banner's flair for daring is displayed in all its glory here, and the very presence of his army in the region caused Ferdinand III to flee back to Vienna. Shells rained down on Regensburg as the Diet debated its course of action, and the city itself may have fallen to Banner had he not been on the other side of the Danube and therefore reliant on the frozen ice as a means to cross and besiege the city proper. When the ice began to break unseasonably early in February 1641, his plans, and that of his French reinforcements under the command of Marshal Gabrion, were frustrated. I remember one of my lecturers telling me that the reason why the ice melted so early was because frantic Regensburg citizens, supported by the princes and electors present for the meeting, threw burning furniture in the frozen river to get it to melt. While this would be a hilarious image, even more so if we imagine Maximilian of Bavaria chucking a flaming wardrobe onto the ice, I haven't found any evidence for it in my investigations. Whatever the cause of the thaw though, Banner's efforts and his French allies had only driven home the need even further to Ferdinand III that peace at any price had to be achieved. Not only was it completely unacceptable that Banner could have reached so far into essentially the south-southeast of modern-day Germany, but the fact that France and Sweden were now militarily coordinating their campaigns and acting together on the battlefield really kept Ferdinand and his generals awake at night. The news of the close call at Regensburg proved the final straw for the new elector of Brandenburg. 
When George William had died in winter 1640, his son Frederick William, at the age of just 21, inherited an electorate a third of its former size. The loss of Wittstock in 1636 had resulted in a Swedish occupation of virtually all the electorate's important lands, though by that stage, the war zone that had been endured there meant there was little actual productive land left. George William fled to Prussia, where he adopted as his capital Königsberg in East Prussia, a good distance from his former capital in Berlin. This effectively meant that the once influential Brandenburg elector was isolated from the important events of the late 1630s. When George William died, his son Frederick William was determined not to maintain the same state policy as his father. A peace treaty with Sweden was the young elector's primary goal, even if that went against what had been agreed in the 1635 Peace of Prague. Geoffrey Parker outlines this, quote, Following the death of his father's chief advisor, the pro-imperial Kent Schwarzenberg, in March 1641, envoys were sent to Stockholm to arrange a ceasefire. In July, almost precisely ten years after Gustavus Adolphus had brought his army to Brandenburg, the fighting there stopped. The great elector was not prepared to see his patrimonial lands destroyed by the Swedes simply because he was allied to an emperor who could offer him no protection. End quote. Frederick William would certainly be guilty of being a realist, in that he did not value Ferdinand III's empty promises for aid, nor value his own obligations of loyalty, when the very real fact was that the Habsburgs were failing and could not stop the Swedes destroying his lands. His commitment to a peace looks a bit similar to that of Maximilian of Bavaria. Yet Max was attempting to gain peace and hold on to lofty Bavarian goals. Frederick William simply wanted an end to the war, and he was willing to sign anything in order to get it. Frederick William would come to be known as the Great Elector, as Geoffrey Parker noted, because of the strides he took to improve Brandenburg's standing in the world. His efforts ensured that Brandenburg would merge with East and West Prussia, while Pomerania would continue to be divided among it and Sweden. You may have heard of his great-grandson, Frederick the Great, but it was Frederick William who here designed and outlined the path that his great-grandson would follow. At the age of 21 then, Frederick William was about to embark on the beginning of a new phase of German history, that dominated by Prussia. Before it was Prussia though, it was a Brandenburg threatened by internal ruin and external enemies. Frederick William knew that the first step towards increasing his fortunes was swallowing his pride and making a Swedish peace. The bowing out of the Thirty Years' War by Brandenburg was followed by the Dukes of Brunswick in January 1642, and indeed the Duke of Ulick Cleve also tried to get in on the peace negotiations. This scrambling towards peace feelers by those North German princes were not all successful, but they did illustrate the fact that the rulers were hurting, and no amount of loyalty to their emperor was viewed as worth straining or endangering their resources, or lands even further. As far as they were concerned, they no longer owed the emperor anything, and now that Ferdinand was powerless to protect them, he had foregone their agreement in the Peace of Prague. The partial peace this brought to the north of Germany is significant, but, as Geoffrey Parker explains, quote, the war continued elsewhere just the same. The death of Banner in May 1641, followed by the mutiny of some of his units, provided a brief respite for the imperialists. But on June the 30th, 
Oxton Stierna's envoys at Hamburg concluded a final alliance with France to last until the peace. And Lennart Torstensson, one of Sweden's most successful commanders, was sent to Germany to win the war. In the spring of 1642, the new commander-in-chief invaded Saxony, defeating the forces of John George yet again at Schweidnitz, and advanced towards Silesia into Moravia. He captured that capital, Olmuck, in June, and threatened Vienna before withdrawing his main army to Saxony, where he laid siege to Leipzig. There, on the 23rd of October 1642, the imperial army under the command of the emperor's brother, Archduke Leopold, challenged the Swedes to battle. Torstensson withdrew a little northwards towards Breitenfeld, and there he won a victory almost as complete as that of Gustavus, on the same terrain 11 years before. The imperialists lost 5,000 men on the field, and a further 5,000 as prisoners, as well as 46 field guns, the Archduke's chancery and treasury, and the supply train. Leipzig fell a month later, paying an indemnity of 400,000 thalers. It would remain in Swedish hands until 1650. End quote. This shocking turn of events shattered Habsburg resistance in the north of Germany. Torstensson was another of Gustavus's key lieutenants who had been present at his greatest victories, like Breitenfeld in 1631, which Torstensson here had virtually emulated. He was as good a replacement as any for the much-loved Banner, who had died of suspected sclerosis of the liver due to his heavy alcohol intake. Richelieu had hoped that through joint French military help, Swedish forces would be able to hold imperial forces back and enable the French trouncing of Spain. But even Richelieu must have been pleasantly surprised at the level of success Torstensson achieved in that October of 1642. But it was October in 1641 when the meeting of Regensburg ended. Ferdinand III had finalised the terms which he believed peace would be acceptable. Motivated by the shocking advance undertaken by Banner, as he shelled Regensburg and was aided by France, Ferdinand perhaps began to understand that peace necessitated sacrifice on his part. Although the papal reps complained heavily to all involved in April 1641, since they sensed what Ferdinand was about to do, the emperor had no choice. He threw out the Edict of Restitution at last. Any ecclesiastical property which had been in non-church or secular hands, as of the 1st of January, 1627, was to remain so. Ferdinand was abandoning all his ugly religious issues that had been detailed within the Edict, in favour of a real platform where he could put forward proposals for a lasting peace. Though Ferdinand did agree on further taxes to pay for additional troops so that his negotiators could possess some leverage, and though he also attempted to reinforce the Habsburg position as the sole negotiator with foreign powers, the ability of Ferdinand to negotiate with his fellow princes on any level of strength was disappearing fast and he knew it. Although it was hoped in October 1641 that the imperial position could be salvaged by a favourable peace, both caution and speed was urged to prevent further Swedish gains or Spanish losses, so that some vestiges of strength remained in the Habsburg position. But, as we've learned, Torstensson would decimate what remained of this strength with his victory at the Second Battle of Breitenfeld in the following year of October 1642, and as his forces overran Saxony, Moravia and Silesia, and as Philip of Spain saw his fortunes plummet yet further, the realisation began to dawn on Ferdinand that if he did not extricate what remained of his Holy Roman Empire from the Thirty Years' War, 
then he would soon not possess an empire to negotiate on behalf of. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. In this portion of our Thirty Years' War special, we have looked at the events of 1638-1642, to with a particular focus on the collapse of Spain and the increase in the fortunes of the French, Dutch and Swedes. Next time, we'll examine where the Thirty Years' War goes from here, some additional Triple Alliance victories, and how a surprising cameo from an old Habsburg enemy almost causes Ferdinand to hold on to the hope for a favourable peace once again. Almost, but not quite. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fell special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.8. Thanks! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.